Welcome to the Creative Agency Account Manager podcast with me, Jenny Plant from Account Management Skills Training. I'm on a mission to help those in agency client service keep and grow those existing client relationships so your agency business can thrive. Hello and welcome back to the Creative Agency Account Manager podcast. I just want to give a quick shout out to anyone who's been listening for a while and has taken the time to write to me to give me some feedback on the podcast. And also for those of you who've left a review on Apple Podcasts, it really is amazing to get this feedback. And I'm so pleased when people tell me that they get value from the podcast and that they're finding the episodes useful. That was always my intention. So please keep the feedback coming. And also if you leave a review, it just means more people can see it. So thank you so much. Today, we're talking about the agency account manager's role in making sure projects are delivered profitably in a creative agency. So I've invited an expert, Marcel Petipa, and he's going to talk to us about the most common reasons agencies are unprofitable and some examples of where agencies can tighten up. He's also going to share what he's seeing the most profitable agencies doing differently. So you might want to take a note of that. And also the importance of the account manager's role in agency profitability. And he also mentions what he thinks of value-based pricing. Now, there's lots of wonderful, useful nuggets of wisdom that he's going to share with us. And I really found this discussion with him so valuable. So if you're an account manager or you're running an agency, hopefully you're going to get some value from it. So let's go over to the introduction now. So today I have Marcel Petipa, who is the founder and CEO of Parakeeto. I'm really excited about getting into this chat because he has a consulting and technology company that helps agencies track the right metrics and improve their profitability. So this is hugely needed in the agency world. And he also happens to be the host of the Agency Profit podcast. So Marcel, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Jenny. Yeah. And we've had obviously a chat before and I'm really excited about getting into these questions because they're super relevant to both agency owners and account managers. So Marcel, do you want to kind of start by answering the question, how did you arrive at the decision to start Parakeeto? It's a great question. So I first became familiar with the challenge of answering what seems like a really simple set of questions when I ran my first agency. It's actually the first business I ever ran. It was called Real Tours Media, and we did real estate virtual reality services. So 3D models of houses. This was back before the technology was so good to do this, where you know just about anybody can do it with their phone. So at that time, I was asking myself these questions as a small agency owner, and it was really painful to try and get a resolution. And it was also really hard to get answers to the nuances of how to measure these things, right? So like, what exactly is the gross profit? of a service? What's included and what's not included in that? What exactly is a utilization rate for an employee? What's included in their capacity? What's not included? What exactly is a billable hour? These things, they seem obvious, but when you really dig into the nuances, it's not very clear. And there was not a lot of great information out on the internet. There was just a handful of people that were talking about this stuff. You know, David C. Baker, Drew McClellan were were some of those folks. Jody Grundon over at Summit CPA, like these were some of the people that had some of the earlier resources, but it really wasn't at a level of depth that I felt like I was able to get what I needed. So Anyway, long story short, I was able to figure out enough to know that at that time when the real estate market wasn't very good, there was not enough margin in my service for me to scale. So I walked away from that business. 
I became interested in software. And a few years later, a good friend of mine, Jared, called me up. He runs a software development agency out of Boise called Royal J. And he said, look, I spend hours every week in spreadsheets answering these questions. There has to be a better way to do this. We started chatting because I totally understood that problem. A mentor of ours, Dan, had also seen this problem time and time again. And that really was the jumping off point for us to say, let's start figuring out how to solve this problem. And it's been a long and windy road, but I think we've arrived at a really great solution. Amazing. And so can you put in a nutshell what Parakeeto does? Yeah, I can try. We have three steps to solving this problem. And the first is really about auditing and assessing and making sure that the agency is clear on their strategy for how to measure things. Because I think the conversation often starts at tools, right? And we think that the tools are the problem. And very rarely have we worked with clients where they had to change all of their tools. And almost nobody has come into a sales conversation and said, I think I have the right tools or I'm really happy with my tools. But we rarely have to change them. The reason for that is often what's more problematic is there isn't clarity on what's being measured, why it's being measured, what question it's supposed to answer, exactly how it's going to be measured, as well as at what levels of the business it needs to be measured at and how frequently. Because until those answers are clear, then we can't even really properly assess tools or understand how to set them up to achieve those objectives. So that's really the purpose of the first part is we audit the agency, really get clear on how much profit's being left behind and why and how they should be measuring those things to close the gaps. The second step of that is, of course, setting up a system that helps them track all those proper things in the proper way and make the best use of their tools. And then the last piece is kind of an ongoing, almost like a fractional COO type service with a data team behind it. So almost like a fractional bookkeeping and CFO type service would take care of all your finances. And you might sit down with them every couple of weeks or every couple of months to look at the numbers and make strategic decisions. We do the same thing for the non-financial data in the agency, the time tracking or project management data, and really helping empower our clients with data that helps them really dig into the nuances and make better decisions in the business. Amazing. It sounds so thorough. And obviously, it's a combination of the tools you use in the background, but also, most importantly, the thinking. Now, you've obviously had a lot of experience of working with different independent agencies, mostly, I would imagine. Yeah, that's correct. We have worked with some holding company agencies as well, but mostly independent. Okay, excellent. And so what are you typically seeing? What are the patterns that are emerging in terms of identifying the most unprofitable areas of the business? Yeah, well, it's funny because when you really think about the core of this business model, it's very simple. There's only about three reasons that an agency is not going to be profitable. And then it's just a question of isolating which one is problematic or which combination is problematic for that particular agency. But if you think about the fundamental math, it's like how much income does that agency generate? And then we want to make sure we're clear on how much of that actually belongs to them. So removing pass-through expenses and ad spend and things of that nature. And then there's the question of how much does it cost them to earn a dollar of that revenue? And that's really what we think about generally as gross profit. We call it delivery margin just because sometimes we get into fights with accountants about what gross profit means. So we just use different language. But that is generally where the problem lies is the relationship between the revenue that they earn and how much it's costing them to earn that revenue. And we'll talk about a few levers in there in a moment. And then, of course, lastly is overhead. So once they've earned a dollar of revenue, they have a certain amount of money left over. They still have to pay for rent and lawyers and accountants and their website and hosting and admin salaries and founder salaries, often sales and marketing teams. And that usually takes up anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of their agency gross income. So once that's all been pulled out, ideally, there's a profit margin left behind 20, 30, maybe 40 percent after compensating the founders. and 
most of our clients come to us thinking, oh, I spent too much money on my bookkeeping or, you know, I should use the $50 version of the software instead of the $100 a month version of the software. And the reality is most of the time their problem is they spend too much money to earn a dollar of revenue and they should be trying to spend less than 40 cents for every dollar that they earn in the business at kind of the gross profit margin level. And there's a couple of different levers that affect that number, but that's generally the core of the problem. Right. And just a side question, actually, that's just sprung to mind. Agencies typically, and we could argue for hours on this, I'm sure, but we charge by the billable hour. But actually, we shouldn't be, should we? Because what we're delivering is a lot of the time, depending on what kind of agency it is, is thinking. And how can you put an hour on thinking and strategy and creativity? And I'm just interested in your view on this. How many agencies do you come across that value price versus the traditional billable hour? I think I'm going to have a very different perspective on this than a lot of your other guests. So those of you that are listening and you and I, Jenny, because we're in the industry, I'm sure your feed is full of other agency experts. You know, I love following everybody else in the industry, but I feel like I'm constantly being bombarded with messaging that basically makes me feel like if I bill by the hour or if I have hourly conversations with my clients, like I might as well be riding around in a horse and buggy and faxing things to be like, it's antiquated, you shouldn't do it, it's crazy. I actually don't think that's true. I think far too many people are value-based pricing that are not ready to do it because it's a very advanced pricing model and it requires you to, A, have a lot of value in the sale that you're making. And that's a contextual thing. It's very, very hard to anchor your price to value if the value is actually not there relative to the client. And the other thing is risk, right? Like if you're gonna value price, but you're doing very risky work, that contract model, is the whole idea of it is that you're absorbing an outsized amount of risk in order to capture more value. But if the inherent risk of that type of work is high, you're going to have to value price at such a high level that it might not actually be the most beneficial contract structure for you or the client. So in my opinion, I don't think that hourly billing is like fundamentally bad, nor do I think value-based pricing is fundamentally bad, nor do I think flat rates are fundamentally bad. Nor do I think abstracted time materials models like selling sprints or selling months of a cross-functional team or some other kind of tricky way of packaging up what is essentially time materials. I don't think any of those are bad. I think what you have to understand is how much risk is there in my service offering and how much value is there in my service offering for this particular client. And using that information, identify the pricing model that helps you balance risk and value and ultimately maximize the profitability of that engagement while still closing the sale. And we have a whole video that goes into what we call the pricing model quadrant, which is how we assess this for each service offering. But yeah, the TLDR is, I don't think hourly billing is necessarily bad. And what I think so many people get caught up on, I've heard this said before, is like, you can never be profitable billing by the hour. That's crazy. Of course you can. The only thing that matters in your agency is that you spend less than 40 cents to earn a dollar. So if your cost per hour on average is 40% or less than your hourly rate, There's no problem with that. As long as you're not, of course, eating hours for free, not billing the client, your utilization is going to be very important in that situation. There's other factors, but if fundamentally you can keep your margins at that level, that's a healthy business. And that's true no matter how you decide to present your pricing to the client. Well said. I like your answer. And I suppose it gets even harder for those agencies that have enterprise level clients with strong procurement departments because they love to compare agencies, don't they? And agency hourly rates and stuff. So it's much, much harder anyway, even if you were to try to go for the value-based pricing model. Yeah. And I think the thing that I want to remind everybody of is you're talking about an enterprise client, like 
the thing that's nice about time and materials-based billing is that it offers you protection in the contract. If the scope changes, if the client decides to change the scope on you or the requirements weren't super clear, or they're asking you to do something that's just like really, really hard to scope, you don't have to be quite as on top of setting that expectation perfectly at the start because you have mechanics built into the contract to share risk. So it can actually be a really good thing to price that way if you're getting into an engagement where you know there's a lot of risk involved or this client could completely change things up on you. And there's a reason why, like companies like Media Monks, for example, huge agency, really reputable. They do huge enterprise development projects for lots and lots of money. They use a time materials-based pricing model for a lot of their engagements where they're selling a cross-functional team, you know, on a sprint basis. But when you really boil that down, that's time and materials. I'm going to give you like a half of this person's time and all of this person's time for X amount of money per time period. You're just abstracting away from the hour, but the mechanics are the same because what they know is when they get six sprints into this enterprise development project, the entire scope is going to be different than what they thought it was when they started. And inevitably, those projects often turn into very long engagements. They thought it was going to take 12 months and it ends up being a three-year thing because it just kind of continues to evolve. But it doesn't matter because they're getting paid the whole time and their margins are baked into their pricing. So they're good. Yeah. And I suppose Martin Sorrell, who owns Media Monks, is, you know, he's run enough businesses in the creative space to know what works and what doesn't from a profitability perspective. So you've got to listen to that. So that's an interesting case study, actually. So can you just share a couple of examples, maybe, of how you've helped an agency address those kind of profitability areas? Yeah. So generally, when we do the audit, it becomes very, very clear what the problem is. And there's generally three problems that exist, assuming that delivery margin is the issue. The easiest thing is like overheads the issue, because then it's just a question of cost cutting. You know, that's not always a fun thing, but often it's a very straightforward thing to do. The harder thing is, hey, you spend too much money to earn a dollar of revenue. So what are the three ways in which we can address that problem? The first is often utilization. So they might be paying you know, for 10,000 hours of capacity every month or every year, but they're only using 20, 30, 40% of that time that they're buying in bulk towards things that bring money into the business, towards moving client deliverables forward. And generally, as an agency, you want to spend more than 50% of that time on things that earn you revenue. Like if more than 50% of your time is not productive and earning revenue for the business, it's going to be very, very challenging for you to be profitable. And when I talk about that 50% benchmark, I mean for everybody in the company, including the person that cleans your toilets, does sales, et cetera. Like if we zoom out and look holistically of all the payroll that gets deployed in the business, unless 50% or more of that is being deployed against things that earn revenue, it's very hard to be profitable because you're having to really factor in a whole lot of non-productive labor, essentially. So making sure your utilization is high, producers should be you know, on a weekly basis, anywhere from 75 to 90% billable on an annual basis, take 10 to 15% off of that. Those are some general targets. That's the first thing. The second thing is then average billable rate. So for every hour that the team works on average, how much revenue do they earn? And a lot of times people are thinking, oh, well, I charge $150 an hour. Well, that's all fine and great. But if you spend twice as much time on every project than you thought, you're actually making half that much money. And so that's a really important thing to pay attention to. Because, of course, if the team has 10,000 hours of capacity and they're spending twice as much time on things than you think they're going to, then they're going to be able to earn half as much revenue. And that's pretty material. That's probably almost all of your delivery margin or gross profit out the window if you're not managing scopes properly. So that's the second piece is being efficient and really thinking about how much cost do we incur when we do things. And that usually comes largely down to the volume of time required to get something done. 
And then the third lever is the cost per hour, right? So if my cost per hour is $10, I don't need to have a very high average billable rate to have great margins. If I can make $100 per hour, my cost is 10. I mean, those are amazing margins. But if my cost per hour is $70 per hour because I hire very senior, you know, very experienced people, I need to charge a lot more money to be profitable. So this is another thing that I think is a vanity metric is when people compare rates or they talk about revenue per FTE. It's not a very useful metric because it doesn't consider the cost per hour. And ultimately what matters is the margin. So the second strategy here, if you can't increase your prices or there isn't necessarily an opportunity to get sufficiently more efficient in the way you do things and cut the amount of time it takes down, it's to look for opportunities to hire less experienced or less expensive talent, whether that's offshoring, going to more junior people, maybe hiring white label resources so that you can bring that cost per hour down, which reduces the requirement for a high rate in order to be profitable. At the end of the day, those are the three levers you can pull to ultimately get the fundamentals in place, which is being able to spend less than 40 cents to earn a dollar and have a 60% delivery margin on your work. As long as that's true on the P&L, then you should be fine. Excellent. I feel we're going to get into this in more detail because obviously the account manager in the agency is really key to this because like you say, if they're spending double the amount of time that actually we've billed for or that we've estimated for on anything, and that could be due to different things. I mean, maybe they've got an extra demanding client. Maybe we're not being efficient internally. There's all these kind of things. So talk me through what you think the role of the account manager is generally in ensuring that the agency is profitable? Yeah, this is a great question. And so, of course, the first thing that I'll preface this by saying is the role of an account manager, I think, historically has been a little bit hard to pin down exactly. If you ask 10 different agencies what their account manager does every day, you'll probably get 10 different answers. But I think you and I can agree that at the core of that role, there's always a bit of overlap in a couple of important places, which is managing that client relationship, And ideally, a good account manager should be looking for opportunities to retain and expand the business with that client. And so often they're going to be the person that's at the center of a conversation with the client about what's coming up next for them, whether the work they might need to do, what other needs that the agency can meet for them, and ultimately representing the client internally when rubber hits the road with people like you know, perhaps it's the principals or the sales team or the project managers, and they have to now come up with scopes and price and timelines for these things. So the account manager plays a very, very important role in all of this. So what is fascinating and what we've observed recently in some of our audits is that some of the most profitable companies that we've audited, they basically only do account and project management and sales, maybe a little bit of strategy, and they outsource almost everything else. So you imagine they sell websites, they're selling the client a website, They have an account manager on that account. They maybe have a person in the business that's really good at strategy and, you know, creating a brief essentially. And then there's a white label partner that charges them a flat rate to build the website. And I've seen, we've got clients that like, it might cost them 20,000 in hard costs for the website and they're charging, you know, 150, $180,000 for it. So when you think about that, you've got an account manager and a strategist, they might have to invest, I don't know, 40, 50 hours to get this project done from start to finish. And they're earning 160K in that case, if they're charging 180 in this cost. So their average billable rate is insane. And what this goes to show is that those are two of the highest value roles in the organization, strategy and account and relationship management, essentially. So as an account manager, recognizing that you play one of the most important roles in the business and really leveraging that to make sure that when you're representing the client to 
the internal team and you're working through the scoping and pricing, if you can understand these things well and understand the mechanics, contract structures and how to negotiate that with the client, as well as pricing models and margin, then you can really be at the center of making sure that all the ongoing work, which is the most profitable by nature, by the way, because we don't have to spend money to pitch the client, pick them through the sales process. You have the opportunity to add the highest profit revenue to the business. And you do that through really great relationship management and really great expansion. So I think account managers are critically important in this and can be one of the catalysts to really separating an agency that otherwise would be flat or wouldn't grow as fast if it wasn't for proactive expansion and retention of clients, which is one of the bigger challenges for a lot of the agencies we work with that they really haven't mastered this yet. I've got a feeling that there's quite a lot of agency owners, their ears have just pricked up at what you've just said, because that is quite a compelling kind of business model, actually, what you've just described. And in those specific cases where those agencies are so highly profitable because they're kind of outsourcing to a white label provider, are they always outsourcing to a a separate, like one entity, a white label provider, or do they use a network of freelancers? What have you seen in terms of how it's actually operating. That backend, I've seen a varying mix. Some have like a couple of partners that they build really deep relationships with. And essentially what they're doing is recognizing like, hey, we're not great at operations. So we're going to find somebody who is, but we're really great at strategy and sales and positioning. And, And so they're having value conversations and they can do that because they've taken all the risk out of their business, right? So you see how it's recognizing your strengths and then leaning into them. And then they're finding a partner who's amazing at operations. They're super organized. They get things done on time. They do great work, but they probably suck at sales or they're just not very comfortable with it. They prefer not to do it. That's a great marriage. So we have seen situations where they have one or two or three, depending on the scale, really good partners that they focus on. We have another client right now that, you know, their team, their core team is probably only about 25 people. But on average, they've got about 70 people working for them at any given time with their venture freelancers. So they are very much this kind of freelance style. And similar, they get individual freelancers to commit to project-based prices for most of their engagements. And then they're value pricing those back to the client. So this way of basically looking at, okay, where's our core competency, drawing a line there, and then pushing everything that's not a core competency out of the business is a really great lever to pull to reduce risk, which if you really want to be getting into value-based pricing or flat rate pricing is the biggest lever you need to pull to get there. Take the risk out of the business and now you can really like anchor yourself to flat rates or anchor yourself to value prices without it you know, being a big risk to you or putting you in a position where you might be losing a lot of money or you might be really struggling with the operations of the business because you still got to scope stuff because otherwise, how do you resource plan? How do you hire? How do you make sure people aren't working even on the weekends? So yeah, I see a spectrum, but the fundamentals are generally the same. It's just the idea of saying, how can we take this risky stuff out of the business and push it to people that it's their core competency? And then often the second question there is, how can we get contract negotiations with them happening in such a way where we're further minimizing the risk to us by getting them to commit to flat rates? It kind of is a win-win situation, isn't it? Because like you say, first of all, the starting point is play to your core strengths. And then actually there is an argument to say that if you don't have those external like delivery people on your books, then they're running their own business. And from a freelance perspective, they want to do a super great job for you. They're, you could argue that in some respects, it's like they're more highly motivated to make sure that they come in on time, on budget from what they've quoted you. So there's a lot of highly motivated people all around. Just out of interest, for yeah. those agencies that are running this model, what is the percentage 
that you would say should be billable for the project manager and the account manager? Because you said 75 to 95% before, and I'm just wondering. That would be, yeah, that would be a benchmark for more of a pure producer. So I'm thinking about designers, copywriters, right. uh, developers, et cetera. Of course, we know for project and account managers, that's generally going to be quite a bit less because, I mean, just generally, just tracking time as an account or project manager in and of itself can be a really daunting task because your day often bleeds away in small five-minute increments. And that's just the way that that job works. You're hopping around from one client to another. So it can be hard to attribute your time if we're asking you to track time to a specific client or project. But generally speaking, the targets for those project managers and account managers is going to be much lower, usually anywhere from 40 to I've seen on the high end 70 or 75%. But that's in situations where they're really absolved of a lot of, you know, administrative responsibilities, and they're very much tactical. But because we see the role of a project or account manager span so much, depending on what the makeup of that role looks like, it's reasonable to expect that their billable expectation on a weekly basis will be much lower, usually a good 15 to 25% lower than your average producer in the business. Yeah, that would make sense because particularly from the account management perspective, if they are spending extra time looking to grow the account and looking for additional opportunities, then they can't attribute their time to an existing project, can they? So that makes sense. This is fantastic. I think really compelling. So can you share any kind of tips or advice for those managing the client relationships to help them operate in a more profitable way? Can you give maybe a flavor of some examples that you've seen? So for example, I'm just thinking if you're starting to work with an agency and the account management team maybe are not putting their foot down enough, they're not pushing back on the client enough, maybe they're not being strong enough. Just give me a flavor of what you're seeing yeah, so it's a very wide question. So I'll start with kind of what are the problems that we often see come up at kind of the account to agency level. And of course, a lot of this is going to come down to what's the makeup of the team? Is the account manager kind of wearing both account and project management hats? Do you have those two layers in place? And of course, we see all kinds of different structures being placed there. But if we assume that the primary responsibility we're talking about here is being essentially the representative to the client and looking for opportunities to expand and grow them, couple of things that we see that are challenging. Number one, when we get into this order taking dynamic, and a lot of this is just going to come down to the things that you teach. So if we're in an order taking dynamic, that can be challenging because of course, as an account manager, that leaves you often with very little time to go through a thorough planning exercise with your internal team and really make sure you have your ducks in a row when you go to the client to have the pricing or scoping or timeline conversation. Because often when a client comes to you with a request, they need it yesterday. That's not always the case, but more often than not, you're going to be putting yourself in that position. So of course, it starts with being very proactive, looking for those opportunities to partner with the client, looking down the road so that you can come to them prepared. And you can even start to play this game that, and this is kind of a sales tactic in a sense. And we do this a lot, not because it's a tactic, but because it's a real thing where it's like, hey, we have a certain amount of capacity in the next quarter, in the next couple of months. We've talked about these things that are important to you that are coming up. I just want to make sure that we can get some stuff locked in that's important to you so we don't end up having to delay your timelines or you know, we don't end up having to reduce the scope in order to meet your needs. So this is a really effective way to actually get sales across the line and take more control of that process of setting timelines and scope and pricing based on the idea that if they don't lock you in, you're going to have to sell that time to somebody else. That's just the way that the business model works. Nice. This is especially easy if it's actually true for you, which, you know, for us, a lot of the time it is. So it, it makes it easier for us. So that's one big thing. Love it. Keep them coming, Marcel. You're doing really well. I'm scribbling notes. The next thing that I would say is, I think as an account manager, if you can really 
become well-versed in two things. So I think that there's a lot of training and you offer some of the best training I've seen on this around how to essentially sell well as an account manager. And you're not so much a hunter, you're more of a farmer. So it's a different way of selling. It's much more consultative, much more my style. I really enjoy that way of selling a lot more because you're really just being helpful as often as possible and looking for ways to add more value to the client. So that's amazing. And you want to make sure that you know how to do that. But where there isn't as much training and information, and some of this you can grab for free in our toolkit, is around understanding the nuances of the contract structure and how that impacts the way that an engagement runs with a client. I think one of the things that we can get tripped up at, especially if we're in an agency that has a lot of these things going on. So some clients are paid by the hour, some are on retainers, some are on retainers that it's based on hours and they have rollover credits or they don't. Some are project-based, some are value-based. And when you're not crystal clear on what the contract terms are with that client, when you start to get into this kind of negotiation conversation or they're asking for additional scope or they want to move the timeline around, you can kind of lose your sense of what you're anchoring to. Because if you're billing by the hour, the way you have to have that conversation and manage the scope and manage the expectations is very, very different than if the rate is flat. Like the dynamics of that contract and how your profitability moves around is different because the risk sharing is different. So I think really digging deep into that, and I'll provide a video in the show notes, I'll send a link to you that talks about the basics, the quadrant I talked about earlier, but I think that's a really critical thing because if you're always clear on like, okay, this is a value-based client, so I'm anchoring myself to value when they talk about deliverables and scope and so on, and I'm anchoring myself to timeline. And those are kind of the two levers that I can pull and use to make adjustments and protect our margins in this conversation with the client. I think that that's a really powerful skill to have and can make a huge difference in protecting all those little moments that you're responsible for as an account manager that can erode a lot of the profit off of an engagement over time. I think that's a really super great point because actually I'm wondering how many account managers I'm working with currently or have worked with who have actually looked at the contract. I think it depends on the agency size, maybe. And when you take over that account, how long that account has been with the agency, for example, if you're joining the account, whether you would look back or think to look back at the contract. So that's super great. And thank you for providing the link because that would be really valuable. What else? Keep talking. So I think the last thing is really understanding the fundamentals of what makes a project profitable and becoming more interested in, and involved in the process of scoping. Because I think what often happens, and this is talked about as like a healthy tension in agencies a lot of the time between the account and the project manager, where you know the account manager is pushing for the client and kind of advocating for them. And of course, the project manager's job is to protect the team. And they end up in this kind of like healthy conflict. And hopefully that stays cordial the whole time. But I don't really see a reason why that has to be seen as kind of a one versus the other. I think tension is healthy there, but by and large, those two folks should be able to sit on the same side of the table and understand that it's like, okay, we need to meet the needs of the client, but we also need to meet the needs of the agency. And here are some fundamental truths about our business model that if we don't protect, you know, it puts everybody's jobs and our livelihood at risk. And those fundamental truths are we need to basically spend less than 40 cents to earn every dollar that the client's proposing to give to us. And we need to keep our eyes open for risk and account for those risks in the way that we structure this scope of work. And so I think being more involved and understanding those fundamentals better also gives you a superpower as an account manager because you can see around the corners more. And again, it just helps you do a better job of making sure that you understand how to have a conversation with the client, understand when you have some wiggle room and when you don't, 
understand how to give yourself those trap doors as well. Like I think a really, really good account manager wants that project to be scoped in like a really profitable way because that gives you back pocket ammunition down the road, right? It gives you little freebies that you can give out because you know you left some room in there for you. Just like a really great writer that's writing a story for a Netflix series, they're going to leave themselves some trap doors in case they happen to get signed on for another three seasons. You want to do the same thing as an account manager and you can do that by and large in the scope of work and in the way that things have been priced. So that would be the third thing is pay attention to the actual mechanics of how things get scoped and estimated so that you understand how that works and you understand what options you have when you get yourself into tricky situations with a client. It's a great point. I think this more commercial thinking is really kind of needed. And another point that I see, and I don't know if you see this yourself, is account managers or project managers, depending whose responsibility it is in the agency to price the job, sometimes kind of rely on what they've always priced a similar scope before without like in looking back historically to see like this type of deliverable, this type of project consistently comes in over budget and yet we're not adjusting our pricing. And that could be the fact that there's no kind of internal review of the price of the projects or it's just kind of a habit that's formed and no one's really paying attention to it. Is that one of the things that you uncover sometimes? Absolutely. And I want to double click on it for a moment because I think it's easy for us to sit here and talk about the implications of that being that the agency makes less money. But I think actually the worst byproduct of that is if we think about that for a moment, I estimated it's going to be a thousand hours to get this campaign done for a client. It ends up taking us 1500 hours. The deadline's probably not moving in that situation. So where do those 500 extra hours come from? They come from people's evenings. They come from their weekends. They come from hiring additional staff that's not needed. So then the agency is overstaffed and then we're constantly laying people off anytime we miss an RFP or a big client fires us. These are the things that I really care mostly about. I have to sell the chocolate of you're going to get more money because the owner is often the one signing the check to hire my company to help them with this. But I don't get out of bed every morning because I want the CEO of another agency to buy another yacht or get a third summer home. I'm really interested in making agencies a viable place to work, which I think there was a period of time when that was eroding a lot. And the story that I heard all the time and kind of the understanding was you go to an agency, it's going to suck, but you'll cut your teeth. And then eventually you can kind of retire to working for a brand that treats you like a human being. I don't think there's any reason that that needs to be the case. Agencies can be very profitable while still respecting people's boundaries and having 40 hour work weeks. But when we miss scope projects, that is the collateral damage that I'm most worried about. And I think is much more costly than the short term loss that is incurred on profit because that affects team retention. It affects you know hiring and, and those dynamics. They're harder to measure, but they're very, very expensive. The other thing that I'll say on this is I say this all the time. So many agencies are suffering from indigestion and not starvation. They just happen to feel the same. And so if you think about this for a moment, if you're constantly selling work to meet a certain revenue target so you can make payroll and pay overhead, but that work isn't profitable, the team has to invest all kinds of extra hours that just don't exist in order to get the work done. They're constantly saying, we need to hire more people, we need to hire more people. And we've seen this many, many times before where a company grows, they've doubled in size, tripled in size. The profitability of that business is the same or worse than it was when they were smaller. The owners are making less money, even though the size of the business is much bigger. So, you know, that's great for somebody's ego, but it's actually not serving anybody. And we've actually helped clients grow 40, 50, 60% year over year without hiring a single person just by changing the quality of their revenue and practicing revenue replacement. So instead of selling a new project and then saying, okay, we need to hire a whole bunch of other people to do this because we're at capacity, 
They take that project and then they go to their worst client and they say, we need to renegotiate our terms. And if the client says, okay, we're out of here, no problem. We've just replaced that capacity with much higher quality revenue. We're fixing the indigestion. The best case scenario is the client says, okay, I agree to your new terms. And now you have two clients that have higher quality of revenue. You can actually afford to get more capacity for it. So think about that. Those are the implications of properly scoped, properly priced work. It's not just about the bottom line. It's about the effect that that has on everybody in the organization. And that effect is substantial. Such a good point. Do you actually help the agencies renegotiate their terms with clients as well in your sort of consulting capacity? Or is it just not necessary? <laughs> we'll, we'll refer you to lawyers for a lot of the, uh, the legalese that gets written into the contract. But one of the exercises that we do with all of our clients is the one that I'll share in the video, that pricing model quadrant, to really just get clear on what are the mechanics that are appropriate for the different types of service offerings based on the risk and the value of that service offering. So which of your service offerings should you be pricing hourly right now? Because they're really hard to scope or the way that you need to solve this problem for the client is inherently iterative. Like anything that you need to use an agile methodology for, very, very hard to do that on a flat rate because how many sprints is it going to take? But we don't know. And the whole nature of an agile methodology, if you're really doing it properly, should mean that you're learning new things and changing the scope at the end of every two weeks, right? So those are the things that we really help with is getting clear on how should the contract be structured and what kind of risk should we be trying to protect ourselves from and share with the client? And then in what ways do we talk about price to try and take advantage of a lot of value that might exist or try to overcome a lack of value that exists in this service offering. Because sometimes we sell commodities and that's okay. There's just a different way that we have to think about pricing those things and having the price conversation with the client and you can flip things around. So I had a conversation with a client the other day where I was like, you have a team in the Philippines. You can be wildly profitable charging 50 or $60 per hour. The industry average is like 150. So I would actually encourage you to talk about your hourly rate in sales with the client because there's a really good chance that none of your competitors are pricing at that rate. And that might actually change the client's perspective to asking for everyone's hourly rate. And now, even if in aggregate, the project costs the same, they think they're getting better value from you. They could be wildly profitable, 80% gross margins at $50 per hour. And, and being really transparent that you have your team based in the Philippines, because obviously, I mean, I don't know, but as immediately you said that, I was just thinking, would the client then think, well, the quality is going to be a bit lower? Well, so, I mean, that's an interesting thing. I don't know that he has to tell the client that his team's in the Philippines, or maybe he'll say, you know, we have our architects and our, like, how much of that you want to share, I think is comes down to your sales process. But at the end of the day, if all you're sharing is, yeah, we're going to get this website done. Here's our portfolio. Portfolio looks good. Here's some testimonials, like all the social proofs there. And now they're asking the question, do we hire the agency that's $50 an hour or the agency that's $150 an hour to get the same outcome? There's a case there. You've changed the dynamic of the conversation such that you might seem like you're a better value. Mm. And the client might not care why you can do it cheaper. Just, and it, it might actually not even be cheaper. It might cost the same amount of money. But yeah. it's an interesting thing. Like, I think, again, we get wrapped up in this idea of value-based pricing, but there's a lot more nuance to this. And it depends on who the client is, what you're selling to them, how big they are, what their budget is, and how you set up the frame of the conversation to position yourself for getting the most value and the lowest risk out of the engagement. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. Like you say, it's a case-by-case basis and what's appropriate, what's not. Just while we're on the subject of pricing, I'm just curious about your thoughts on, let's suppose you've got an agency that's been working with a client for a few years. What's your advice when it comes to just generally yearly increases in pricing? What's your view on that? So, of course, I think it makes sense to have a cadence 
to review your client's pricing. And over time, what tends to happen is you increase your prices, you change the way that you do service offerings, like those things are all going to evolve. And at some point, your oldest clients often become your worst. And that's a bit of a sinister dynamic, isn't it? Because often like those are some of your favorite clients if they've been around for a long time, but you start to resent them because the contract terms get worse. And of course, your client's not going to reach out to you one day and say, I'm worried that I'm not paying you enough. (laughs) I don't want to, you know, like it's funny because I actually do this with some of my freelancers that haven't reached out to negotiate their price with me in a long time. The ones that I want to keep around, I reach out Mm -hmm. to them. I say, hey, like I'm worried that it's been a while since we've sat down and talked about this scope. I just want to make sure that like this is equitable. But I'm doing that. It's a self-serving thing, really, because I just want to make sure that they don't fire me because I've become their shittiest client. Yeah. But that's probably not going to happen for you as an account manager. So you have to now do your job, which is to find a way to have those conversations. And I think if you have to just sit down and say, hey, it's our yearly pricing increase, that's one way to do it. But you're putting yourself at a risk and it's not a very fun conversation to have. I think the better way to do this is actually doing business reviews and finding ways to evolve the scope of the engagements that you have with clients to then have a justification for rescoping and repricing the engagement in an ongoing way, right? So actually look for opportunities to add things, modify things, change the way, and frame that all in a way of coming from a place of service. Like, hey, how can we better serve you? What are some more things that we can help you with? Like, how can you get more value out of this engagement? But in doing so, you open the scope up again. So that's really the idea is how can we get the scope open so that we have an opportunity to tweak it as opposed to coming in and having this very difficult conversation of, hey, it's the end of the year. I want to give you the same thing for more money, therefore getting you less value out of this, which, you know, it's no matter how friendly the client is, like that's logically a very difficult thing as a client to wrap your head around because you feel like you're losing something because objectively you are. But if that is kind of hidden behind the veil of the scope is changing and then those lines get blurred a little bit, it can be an easier pill to swallow. And you might not even realize that it's happening to you, that you're getting less for more because what matters is your perception of what you're getting and how you value that. Because mm. obviously, you know, inflation rates currently, I mean, we're recording this in August 2022 and the inflation rates through the roof. So yeah. even to keep, you know, up with inflation, you'd expect to see if you were working with an agency from a client's perspective you'd expect to see some increase and maybe as you say it's quite rightly you know there's a timing thing if you have that conversation when you have that conversation like if you're not doing a great job for the client you know it's not a good time to even talk about it but if you're demonstrating on an ongoing basis how you're adding value and you've been doing that consistently then it's kind of an easier conversation Mm -hmm. to have there's one more thing i'll say on this and it comes back to what we talked about earlier Two things that really help with this. Number one, having data. And number two, understanding the contract structure. Because if you go into that conversation and let's say, for example, like the hardest ones are retainers because those tend to not evolve a whole lot. You you kind of have to push those to evolve. So let's just say they've been paying you $150 an hour for 40 hours a month and you've got this team that they work with. And that's kind of the worst case scenario in terms of renegotiating. Then you could go in and say something to the effect of, you know, we've noticed you've been asking for a lot of deliverables. And we've been pushing to get them done within the month. But in order for us to keep this level of velocity, we actually need to allocate more time to your account, right? So because you understand the structure of the contract, you can have a justified conversation about how this increase in scope or increase in price is going to help them. Or we need to assign a more senior resource because some of the requests that are coming in are more complex and we want to make sure that we meet the level that you expect from that. Similarly, if it was a flat rate contract, there might be this other conversation where it's like, hey, 
you know, we've started doing a different set of things than we agreed to at the start of the, you know, quarter, which happens every time you do a flat rate retainer, you agree to like these four things and then you end up doing six or eight. We want to continue to meet those needs. Let's have a conversation about what it looks like for us to plan for that because we want to make sure that we're still hitting your deadlines and we're still meeting your needs. So understanding the contract and then having some data to help support that conversation is a really powerful tool to be able to understand, again, what you're anchoring yourself to so that it's a logical conversation with a client. Because a lot of times they don't want to go through the pain of firing you and finding somebody else to do it. It's way easier to just pay you a little bit more money and not have to deal with all of that. But they need you to give them a logical reason why that change is happening. And you've really given a lot of value there, Marcel. Thank you. Because I can see if someone is having to have that conversation pretty soon, they'll probably be pausing the recording and listening again at how you said that. <laughs> you said that beautifully, by the way. I could talk to you all day, Marcel, but I can see time. Just interested in what are some of the changes that you've seen over the years working with agencies? You know, do you think it's getting better? Do you think it's getting worse? What are you seeing? Yeah, it's really fascinating. I still think that service-based business models are some of the best business models in the world. There are things about them that are very hard. They're hard to scale. They're hard to measure. Hopefully we're going to fix the measuring part, but you still got to deal with humans and you're still selling time. So that's always going to be hard. However, very, very little friction to get them started up. And the profit margins, if you're doing them well, should be 70, 80. I've seen some companies with 90% gross profit margins. And those are margins that pretty much the only other industries you see those margins in are software and education, you know, selling courses, basically selling products that are like not really tangible in nature. So the next best business model after those two is a service-based business model. But the advantage that the service-based business model has is that unlike a product, you can change it very, very quickly because it's just about changing how you do things, right? Changing a process. And you can sell things and then figure out how to do them later. So it's incredibly good at finding product market fit. It's incredibly adaptive. So I think this is one of the things that I'm seeing is we're seeing a lot more boutique and smaller agencies. We're seeing the fragmentation of the mega agency, the full service agency. And I think everybody is waking up to the fact that a couple of things are really important in this new world. Number one, being very clear and specific about the problem that you solve as an agency. We talk about this as niching and a lot of people get caught up in the vertical or horizontal like mechanisms of that, like what platforms or services do we offer or what specific industry do we sell this to? But really underneath all of that is being really clear about what problem you solve. And in doing so, you generally position yourself for a higher value engagement with the client because you have expertise ideally in solving the problem that they have. And then the benefit to that as well is ideally that allows you to create better systems and better structure and allows you to keep the business smaller. And smaller generally means it's more fluid and more adaptable. And I think if we've learned anything in the last couple of years, it's that things change and they change fast, and that's not going to stop. Things are only going to keep changing, and they're only going to keep changing faster. So I think that there is a lot of allure to running a smaller shop, getting away from this large conglomerate, large holding company. And you're even seeing the holding companies take this kind of attitude on now as well, where they would rather have a portfolio of specialized shops than some of these like massive full-service agencies of the past. So I think that's really one of the big shifts that I'm seeing is this movement towards micro-agencies, this movement towards really being clear about core competency. And the closer to somebody's core competency I see them get, the more profitable they become. That's just a correlation that we see in the numbers. If they're properly niched, they're more profitable. If they're niched and they outsource all the stuff that they're not good at, they're even more profitable. 
So that's just a trend that I'm seeing. That's the observation I've seen in the numbers. And if there's one piece of advice I have for folks on how to think about moving into the future, it's how can you just get closer to the thing that you're uniquely amazing at and start to let go of everything else? Amazing. Really good advice. Thank you so much. Just out of interest, are you seeing any kind of inkling of doom mongering about the economy where we're heading into recession, et cetera? (laughs) Yes, of course. You know, the same kind of conversation we saw through COVID, but I think we're going to see the same dynamics that we saw through COVID. And this has been the case for us. Now, this is kind of interesting because I'll get meta on this, but you know, COVID, we saw some agencies close their doors, have their worst years ever. And we had other agencies have their best years ever. And I think in this recession, uh, which I'm calling the Patagonia Vest recession, which I got from Scott Galloway, because it's outsizedly affecting all the people that have had it really good for a while, which is all the tech companies that were super overvalued. So we're seeing that be affected. So we have a couple of clients that serve SaaS companies. They're not having a good time right now. They're struggling. A lot of them had to do layoffs, right? Like we've had to make a lot of adjustments to right size the business. Whereas typically when you see a market force like that, it's like whack-a-mole. One industry goes down, but then another side of the market typically is seeing some upside. And where we get to kind of zoom out and look at all agencies, it's like if plumbing all of a sudden becomes a really popular thing right now or home services, like there are agencies that serve those clients. So we get to kind of see where things are going up and where things are going down and we're sufficiently insulated. But this is why I think it comes back to adaptability. If you're an agency that's specialized in software right now, you're probably really, really terrified. You've probably had a really rough couple of months, but this is where it's important to be able to recognize, okay, what are some of the shifts that we can make? How can we take this problem and solution and repackage it and make adjustments and adapt? And the faster that you can make those adaptations, generally the more resilient you're going to be. So I think that there are going to be agencies that are affected by this. But again, like any market event that's drastic, it's not going to affect everybody in the same way. And it's really going to be paying attention to your specific industry or niche, as opposed to really thinking about the economy as a whole and asking yourself, is this recession going to have an outsized impact on the person that I serve most often? And if that's the case, then yeah, you probably want to start thinking about how to either shift your focus or get the business into survival mode so you can ride this out and catch the wave on the way up. Because that's the other thing that we know about recessions is anybody that has cash typically comes out the under end of that way better off. And anyone that's over leveraged typically doesn't do so well in the recession. So you're going to have people in your industry that have cash that get to the other end, and then they start cleaning up market share. And those will be the people that you want to have on your roster when you come out of the recession. Mm, Great advice. Okay, love it. So listen, I'm looking at time and you've delivered so much value, Marcel. I mean, you're so articulate as well. I've just been scribbling notes as you're going. Do you have any final words of wisdom, advice, anything that you haven't said that you think would be valuable for either agency owners or the account managers? Yeah, I think I'll close with and and really just thinking about the account managers because and I love that your show is just for account management. We needed this show and you made it. So thank you for that. So for all the account managers out there, understand that you have one of the most important roles in the organization. And if you've ever had this thought of like, because I hear this conversation all the time, I think a lot of agency owners see account management as this like bloat layer in between the client and project management. They're like, what if, could we just get rid of that? Like, why can't the client just talk directly to the delivery teams? Like there's all kinds of reasons that shouldn't happen. But understand that like what we're seeing is even the most stripped down version of an agency, account management is still one of the most important and still one of the most high value functions. And so like own your role, get really, really good at it. And I think you will have lasting power in this industry. I I find it very hard to believe that in the next couple of decades, 
of all the things that agencies are going to stop doing, account management is going to be one of them. So I think that's the last piece of advice is just like, keep investing in yourself and investing in your skill set in this role, because I don't think you're going to end up like, you know, I don't know, truck drivers that get replaced by self-driving trucks from Tesla. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's on the near-term horizon for you. And your skill set as an account manager will translate to lots of other industries as well. You can go into client success and software. You can go like, there's so much skill sharing there. So yeah, don't be afraid to really commit to this career path if it's something that you feel is really compelling and really a good fit for you. Because I, I think there's some redundancy there. Oh my God, I'm going to get that quote because that was so uplifting and probably a lot of account managers needed to hear it as well. So thank you for saying that. That was fantastic. And I obviously echo everything that you've just said. So Marcel, let's finish with who would you like to be contacted by and what's the best place to reach you? Right. So if you're an agency owner and you're not making as much profit as you think you should be, and you're doing over about $750,000 a year in bookings, then you should reach out. Let's have a conversation. If you're an account manager and you feel like your boss should be doing a better job of running the business, you're welcome to reach out as well and get a sense of what we do, but tell them to connect with us. And if you got some value out of today and you want to dig deeper into some of the things that I talked about, make sure you head to paraketo.com forward slash toolkit. I've got a whole bunch of training videos, spreadsheets, cheat sheets, and work documents that help you facilitate some of these conversations. I understand these concepts are all free. And I'll, of course, uh, make sure I fire a link to Jenny after today's interview to get you access to that pricing model quadrant video, which I think is a really, really powerful framework for account managers to get an understanding of. That's fantastic. And we'll make sure that we put that in the show notes. So thank you again, Marcel. This has been absolutely superb. So loved having you and thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Jenny. And I look forward to having you on our show very soon as well. Love it. Can't wait. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed my chat with Marcel and I certainly did. And don't forget to go over and see the resources that he's provided. He talks about the toolkit and that's at parakeeto.com forward slash toolkit and also the agency pricing quadrant. And the URL is a bit long to read out, but we'll certainly include it in the show notes. Also, finally, a reminder that my next Account Accelerator training program starts on September the 5th, 2022, which is helping anyone in a creative agency account management position and who is responsible for the agency's forecast to grow their existing accounts. So if you'd like to learn more about the program, go over to my website, accountmanagementskills.com forward slash training. And you can also book a 20 minute call with me and we can have a chat and see if it might be a good fit for you or someone else in your team. And I'll finish with what other participants have said about going on the program. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one. My confidence as an account manager is, it's it's hard to put that into words, like just how much more comfortable I feel now, because now I feel like I'm, I'm armed with the knowledge that I need to, you know, make like real money for lack of a better term as an account manager, like in my personal professional reaction to that, but then also for the agency that I'm employed by, that is a big outcome for me. And then also, being able to look at all of my clients with their potential in mind. So looking beyond like what's happening in a day-to-day and being able to take a step back and really feel confident in how I'm projecting the relationship in the future. So we're having conversations now and getting into an exclusive relationship where we are brought in as more of like a, a retainer for lack of a better term. 
as opposed to them having to go to multiple agencies. 